chapter 3. Our text today will be verses 13 through 17. In our study of 1 Peter on Sunday mornings, we have been learning what it means to live as Christian strangers in the world. Christian strangers. It's no secret that the worldviews and the values and the morals of God and His people are contrary to the worldview and values and the morals of the world. I say contrary because the world's system of belief and God's truth are not parallel ideologies. They are not complementary systems of thought. They are diametrically opposed to one another. This is something that goes all the way back to Genesis 3. And we learned it when we studied Genesis 3 not that long ago, that the sovereign God has established his truth and his order and his design and his morals and commands. But the evil one has seduced mankind into rejecting God's authority, rejecting that truth, that order, design, morals, and commands, so that they are diametrically opposed to one another, as James reminds us that friendship with the world is enmity with God. You cannot serve both. And the result of this delusion by the evil one and the sin of mankind has been an alienation between God and men. And ever since, mankind has been fleeing the presence of God, has been seeking his own way, and has been hastening on toward eternal damnation under God's wrath. But in spite of all of that, there is good news there. In spite of all of that, God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, has made us alive together with Christ. And by grace, we have been saved. This is the doctrine of election. That God has called us out of darkness, rescued us from eternal condemnation, reconciled us to a holy God, and has set us apart as his children to live with him forever and to live for him forever. As Peter himself wrote back in chapter 2, verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is the foundation of what Peter is teaching in the book of First Peter. He is calling God's people to remember who he is. He's calling us to remember who we are in Christ. He's reminding us that this world is not our home, that its values are not our values, that our ultimate citizenship is in heaven that we have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, that we belong to God as his own precious children, and that we will forever be with him where he is. That is who we are in Christ. But this reality creates a, a certain difficulty in the present world, doesn't it? It creates a bit of a conflict. There is a certain pressure in everyday life to turn back to the world and its values. There is a certain enticement to let go of our identity in Christ and, and our devotion to Him and to go along with the rest of the world. There is a certain discomfort that God's people feel and ought to feel in this world because we are strangers and we are strange. And there is a certain detachment that God's people feel and must feel in this world because our hearts and minds are set on things above and our treasure is in heaven. And yet, Peter writes this book to encourage God's people not to disengage from the world, 
He understands that if we understand these truths, that there is a temptation for us to disengage altogether. Peter says, don't do that. He's reminding us not to disengage from the world, not to retreat from its hostility, not to give in to its pressures and enticements, but on the contrary, if we remember who we are in Christ, that will inform how we live here and now in this present world. It will change the way we see the world. It will change the way we react to hardship. It will change the way we behave among unbelievers. Even as we realize more and more how much we are really strangers here and how we ultimately don't fit in, that we are temporary residents, that we are never quite at home here. And so beginning in chapter 2, verse 11, Peter begins giving practical instruction in what faithful Christian living looks like in our everyday spheres of life. And how that Christian living and godly hope is not expressed only in the gathering of the saints on the Lord's Day morning, but that it is something that walks with us through every moment of our lives, every day of our lives. It marks every relationship. It marks every circumstance. This is something that we carry with us everywhere we go. The context of what Peter is writing here is the reality of suffering for the sake of Christ. So that even when we are mistreated because we are Christians, this hope remains steadfast. It still walks with us. It still governs how we respond. And so even when we suffer in the worst of human circumstances, much more in all the rest of them, we must be responding in a distinctively Christian way. In our text for today, chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, Peter continues that instruction by giving us practical guidance for maintaining godly character and a Christian witness in the midst of a hostile world. Let's look at the text now and see what he says. Chapter 3, verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. In these verses, Peter gives us five examples, or five principles. Five principles that must mark and direct the Christian's focus in all of life. These principles are the essential focus. They are the pursuit of all who would live godly lives in Christ Jesus in the midst of an ungodly world. And by these principles, we can and we must demonstrate a Christian witness in the world around us. These are practical tips of instruction, but crucial commands, crucial principles to follow. The first principle is this, be passionate for goodness. You want to have a, a godly testimony in a crooked world? You want us to have steadfast hope in the midst of a perverse generation? Then be zealous for good works, for goodness. We see this in verse 13. Look at it with me. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? That's a rhetorical question Peter is using, and he's laying out a, a general principle. He's acknowledging that, generally speaking, it is unusual for people, even those who are hostile to Christianity, to want to do harm to those who do good. It's unusual to do harm to those who are zealous for what is good. Now, that's more of a proverbial statement. It's not a, 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 a hard and fast guarantee as we'll see in a moment, but it is a general truth. The world has no problem attacking religious hypocrites. The world has no problem attacking fanatical antagonists. But for those who live godly, upright lives 
in the midst of ordinary life circumstances, as a general rule, the world has no problem leaving us alone. Now we're going to see that there are exceptions to that in a moment, and Peter will address that. But he's laying out a principle here for us that we first need to understand, and this is the foundation of it. The word good here has to do with one's character, the overall character of one's life. It is not just a few good deeds here and there. It is the trajectory of life as a whole. It is the characterization, the, the, the reputation of one's life, that it is good overall. This has to do with integrity. It has to do with unselfishness, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, hospitality, and so on. You know them when you see them, right? People who are generally good. We know it. We appreciate it. We like those people. We like to be around those people. But the word zealous here has to do with intensity and enthusiasm. It's not always a positive term. If somebody calls you a zealot, they're not necessarily complimenting you. And yet that's what Peter is describing here is one who is a zealot in goodness. It speaks of a driving passion, almost to an extreme. Yes, when the world sees your goodness, they ought to think you're a little bit over the top. <laughs> and the grammar here suggests one who has been proven to be zealous for goodness. One who has been proven in this character, this good character of life. In other words, this isn't just a few good deeds here and there. This isn't just a positive disposition, nor is it simply saying the right things at just the right time. This is a life that is known for. It is marked by. Mark it down. Count on it. You can expect it. This person is pursuing what is good. And in the Christian realm, this is a good that is directed by the Word of God itself. This is what Peter is describing. This is a passion that supersedes all other ambitions and temptations. So that in the workplace, more important to me than making a profit is being zealous for good and being known for goodness. So that in the world, more important than winning an argument is being known for being good. For having good character. So Peter lays this out as the starting point for Christians, and he's going to build from this. The starting point is this general principle, this assumption, this expectation that if you are in Christ, you will be passionate for goodness. You will be driven by displaying Christ-like character before the world in which you live. As you face the ungodliness and the hostility or the temptations of this world, Peter's urging is don't get bitter about it. Don't seek revenge about it. Don't even get self-protective about it. And don't fight the world's battles with the world's weapons. Don't repay evil for evil. But strive after that which is good in all things. And it's going to be hard for people to do harm to those who are known for being good in this way. And even if they try, others will resist that. Right? And we see that once in a while in our world, even today. But either way, whether they leave you alone or whether they harm you, the principle is clear. Don't fight evil with evil. Don't be an ungodly stench to the society around you. If you have to fight, fight where Christ has called us to fight. Don't fight where your politicians have told you to fight. Don't fight where extreme religious people have called you to fight. Don't be a jerk to the people around you. How's that for a simple biblical principle, right? Don't be selfish. Don't be underhanded. Don't be deceptive. But remember who you are in Christ and remember what you are here to do. Strive after that. Be known for that. Let the world see it. Be passionate for goodness. Now the next principle builds on that and acknowledges that there are exceptions to this general expectation that the world doesn't want to harm those who genuinely do good. But the second principle is this, be fearless in suffering. 
Be fearless in suffering. Look at verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you will be blessed. The indication here is, therefore, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. The reality is that being passionate for goodness is not a guarantee that suffering will not happen. It is not a guarantee that the world will leave us alone. And history bears that out, even some recent history. That's simply trying to go on about a godly Christian life is more and more now going to become an antagonizing thing for the world. And if that should happen, he says, be fearless in suffering. And Jesus is a perfect example of this, isn't he? Not just in his crucifixion, but also in his daily ministry. His life, which was filled with ridicule and hostility. And Jesus even taught that if he suffered in this way for righteousness, then to some degree, so would all those who follow him. But the phrase here, but even if, it carries the idea of a possibility contrary to what is expected. And in this, I feel like this passage was almost written for the 21st century American. Right? I know it was written in the first century, and it applies to all cultures, but this feels like it is hitting so close to home, doesn't it? Because in our lifetimes, we have, for the most part, been left alone and allowed to do what we need to do as Christians, right? And maybe we get laughed at once in a while. Maybe we get mistreated in a little way. Some of you have, have certainly experienced some antagonism here and there. But as a general rule, what Peter said in verse 13 is true, right? We've been left alone. People haven't wanted to harm us. And yet, do you feel like we're walking into a new era of history where more and more we're being pushed to the fringes of society and we're being told that if we're going to believe this ancient book and these ancient superstitions that we ought not have a voice in the public square. You feel like that, right? And maybe that's not entirely the kind of mistreatment Peter is talking about, but I'm telling you, that leads to somewhere else eventually. Maybe in our lifetimes, maybe not. We don't know. So I feel like Peter is talking directly to us in a sense here, saying, look, you guys know that generally speaking, you've been able to, to practice your faith according to your convictions without a whole lot of interruption. And yet you need to understand that there is a very real possibility it won't always be that way. And if you get to the point where you do suffer because you're Christians, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Why? Because you will be blessed. You will be blessed. Don't be fearful. Don't be afraid. But be prepared. And if you suffer, take heart in this. You will be blessed. That takes me back to chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. You remember it when we studied that? For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. It's important to remember from that verse and from what is indicated in our text this morning that not all Christians who suffer may necessarily be suffering Christian suffering. Not all suffering is Christians. Is Christian suffering. We recognize that, right? Peter talks about that in verse 17. When he says, for it is better to suffer for doing good than, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And there he acknowledges that there is a certain suffering that occurs for non-Christian purposes, right? It's the suffering of sin. And if we have sinned, then suffering might then we ought to expect suffering. For the non-Christian, that suffering might be the, a measure of God's wrath on them as those who have rejected God. But even for the Christian, suffering could be a measure of God's chastening to bring us to repentance. And there also is a certain Christian suffering that we might face because we have returned hostility to the world and we have acted as uh, an ungodly antagonist to the world around us. We certainly ought to expect it if we ask for it in those contexts. But what Peter is talking about here is another kind of suffering that Christians may face, and that is suffering for doing good. 
when the world turns its arrows of hostility and fires them at you simply because you're trying to be faithful to the Lord. Does that happen? Yes. So he speaks of suffering for doing good, or back in verse 14, for righteousness' sake, for upright, godly character and behavior. What are we supposed to think about that? Right? If we go out and be a jerk in society, and then society rejects us for it, we know what to do with that. We've asked for it. But what about when we haven't been that way? What about when we've simply been faithful to the Lord and society turns its arrows on us? What do we do with that? Is that an indication that we've done something wrong? Should we be rethinking our faith because the world doesn't like it? Is this some sort of uh, uh, indication that God is, has, has not noticed or hasn't been able to control it, that things have gotten out of his hands? Absolutely not. In fact, what Peter says here is that this suffering is a means by which God's people will be blessed. What does he mean by that? But once again, he's reminding us that if our focus is only on this world, and if our hope is only that this life, life in this world will be smooth, then there is no blessing in suffering. Right? When we get discouraged, when we get disillusioned, when we get angry and depressed because of our circumstances in this world, what is it showing us? It's showing us that our hope has gotten off track. It is showing us that we've set our hopes on something else. And we are meant to come back to where it is supposed to really be. If our focus is on Christ, if our hope is in Him and the eternal inheritance that He has promised to us, then we will be able now to see the big picture and we will know where our suffering is taking us. That doesn't make the suffering feel better, but it reminds us that we can endure by God's grace because He is with us. He hasn't forsaken us. He hasn't left us to drift and wander aimlessly. He is leading us to our eternal inheritance with Him. And so the Apostle Peter will later say in chapter 5 here in verse 10, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And in the same manner, James says in James chapter 1, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And the Apostle Paul confidently testifies in 2 Corinthians 4, so we do not lose heart. We don't give up. We don't faint. We don't quit. We don't turn our backs on God. Why? Because though our outward self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are eternal, that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Where is it that the Christian sets his hope that carries him through the worst of life circumstances? We have set our hope on the one thing is the late Adrian Rogers used to like to say, the one thing that rust can't destroy and death can't take away. Our treasure is in heaven. And we are blessed. And it seems that Peter is even indicating that even when we suffer for righteousness' sake, it's as if we are doubly blessed. Now there are two aspects to the meaning of this word blessed. In the original language, it can have the idea of happy and joyful. And we see that in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Happy, joyful. Their, their joy is fulfilled, those who are poor in spirit, and so on. And there's a, there's a hint of that here in 1 Peter as well, that because of our steadfast and eternal hope, we can have that heavenly joy and stability in the midst of suffering. But that's not the primary emphasis of what Peter is saying here. 
It has more to it than this. The word can also have the idea of privilege and honor. Privilege and honor. In other words, suffering for righteousness sake is an indication of the believer's privilege and honor in the eyes of God. How is it? I keep coming back to this question throughout 1 Peter. So if I've, I know I've asked it before. Forgive me, I'm going to ask it again. How is it that a preacher tied to a stake, burning to death, can sing praises to the living God? Because of this. Because he, by God's grace, views what he is experiencing as a double blessing, as an extra measure of honor and privilege before the Lord. As Jesus said in Matthew 5, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. That's suffering for righteousness' sake. On my account, he says, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then in Acts chapter 5, verse 41, after the apostles suffered the threatenings and beatings for preaching the gospel, we read, they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy, that they were honored and privileged to suffer for the name, to suffer dishonor for Christ. And Peter himself will say later in chapter 4, verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And then he goes on to talk about the blessing of suffering for Christ. Christians can actually rejoice in suffering. Christ. Not because we love the pain, not because we ignore it, or because we're looking to make martyrs of ourselves against the Lord's design, but because it is an honor to follow in the footsteps of Christ. And it is a reminder that this world is not our home, that the world is not, we're not aiming to make ourselves heroes to the world but that our reward is secured in heaven. And therefore, with such joy and blessing and honor and privilege in our view, even in the midst of suffering, Peter says, we need have no fear of them, nor be troubled. The phrase literally reads, do not fear their fear, or do not be intimidated by them. The world's hostility toward righteousness is meant to strike fear into the hearts of the righteous in order to silence them or to compel them to surrender. The Christian does not need to fear. The Christian does not need to be troubled. We do not need to be intimidated or insecure in our faith. We do not need to give in. We do not need to conform. We do not need to quit in the face of the world's doubts and pressures. The fact that the world says we're on the wrong side of history does not mean we are on the wrong side of history. Because God has told us otherwise. And we trust Him. And so, we don't have to fear. We don't have to walk through this life ashamed of our faith. We don't have to walk through this life ashamed of our weaknesses. We can walk boldly and confidently without fear in the face of the world's intimidation because we are in Christ. And even if that means that we suffer, we realize that we are blessed. Yea, even doubly blessed. And so we can and we must be steadfast, immovable always abounding in the work of the Lord because we know that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. Why? Because we know that He has given us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christian, stand firm. Do not be afraid. 
Do not be intimidated when the world makes you feel like an idiot because you're a Christian. And when you don't know how to answer a particular argument, that doesn't mean you are wrong. That doesn't mean you have failed. Stand firm in your faith. And if you are ridiculed for it, then so be it. Be fearless in your faith. Be fearless in your suffering. The third principle is this. Devote yourself to Christ. This is the only way we can be passionate for goodness, and it is the only way we can be fearless in suffering, is if we are devoted to Christ. Look at the first part of verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. The New American Standard translation says it this way, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. The idea here is that we would submit to him as Lord, that we would devote ourselves to his worship and service. It means we dedicate ourselves to his authority and his guidance and his commands. That involves not just acknowledging the holiness of God, but embracing the holiness to which he has called us in Christ. It means renouncing our allegiance to everything else. It means confessing, I belong to him. I exist for him. And I am in this world for nothing else but to glorify him and enjoy him forever by worshiping him and doing his will. Christians, can you say that of your own life today? Just think about what drives your daily decisions. Can you honestly testify today that this is your life? If you're honest with yourself, you, like I, will say, no, that is not the way I live every moment of my life. We're sinners. We're weak. We mess up, don't we? And so this is not meant to condemn any Christian who had a hard time with this this week. This is meant to encourage you. This is the life you can live. And Christ calls you to it, and he empowers you in it. So if you've messed up this week, you, you can be right with God. You can repent. You can get back on track. Devote yourself to Christ. And this is not just something we do with our words on Sunday. This is something that we do in our hearts. As one commentator summarized it for us, this honoring of Christ as Lord, is not external, but in the hearts of true worshipers, even when they must face unjust suffering. That submission to and trust in the perfect purposes of the, the sovereign Lord yields courage and boldness and fortitude to triumph through the most adverse situations. And when we are devoted to Christ, and we are not driven by the approval or opinions of this world. We're so quick sometimes to give in to the worldly pressure. Why? Because we want them to like us. Please like me. But that's not what drives a Christian who is devoted to Christ, is it? And therefore, we can accept the instruction of the Apostle John in 1 John 2 when he says, do not love the world. Yes, don't be devoted to the world or the things in the world. Why? Because if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You can't do both. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now you read that and tell me who's on the right side of history. Christians, be confident in your faith. Be devoted to Christ. And when we do this, not only do we not love the world, but we are not anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, we can let our request be made known to God. And when we do, the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. It will hold us fast and therefore we can and we must cast all our anxieties on him because we know he cares for us and in this we can trust in the Lord with all our hearts and we do not have to lean on our own understanding or the understanding of the world but in all our ways we can acknowledge him and he will make straight our paths 
When we devote ourselves to Christ, we live for his pleasure and we find joy in it. We find joy in his nearness and in his provision. And we keep our hearts fixed on him no matter what this world throws at us. And we can confidently sing, you can have all this world, but give me Jesus. And when that is our testimony, we are the most steadfast, hopeful people in all the world. But our devotion to Christ is not an empty sentiment. And it is not something we are meant to just keep private, keep to ourselves, and keep our mouths shut about. True devotion to Christ transforms not just how we think, but how we act and how we speak. Therefore, our fourth principle is this. Know what you believe. Know what you, would, what you believe. And I would add to that, be prepared to say what you believe. Look at the last part of verse 15. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. In our steadfast devotion to Christ, in the midst of suffering, there is a gospel opportunity. And whether we are suffering for Christ or not, as we live distinctly Christian lives in this world, according to God's word, there will be some who are curious. Why? Because we're strange. And some people want to know why. Because when we do good, Though some of the world might reject us and though all the world might think we're strange, a good portion of that world thinks we are refreshingly strange. Curious. They wonder why we are the way we are and why we do the things we do. And Peter tells us here, Christian, you need to know why you are the way you are and why you do the things you do. In other words, you need to know what you believe. You need to know why it matters. And you need to be ready to tell others about it. When Peter speaks of making a defense here, there is the idea of a courtroom where we're being accused of something and we're being put on trial and, and we're, we're called to explain ourselves. And no doubt there is a possibility for that for any Christian that we may be called at some point to explain our faith and our refusal to conform to the world, to, to those who are seeking to harm us. But there is another idea here too, and that is the curious inquiry of someone in our lives who notices that we are different, and perhaps they find us strange, but they're, they're interested in that, and there seems to be something good in that. And so they ask us to explain what gives. And that falls into the category of anyone who asks you for a reason. And here is what we are preparing for. Here is what we are looking for. We are ready, we are looking, we are seeking opportunities not to, not to fight. We're not looking for reasons to suffer in the world, as we've seen already, but we are looking for reasons to display gentleness and respect as we give an answer for the glorious and edifying eternal hope that is within us. We're looking for a reason to tell others what we believe and why so as to lead them to our hope in the gospel of Christ. That means, first of all, beloved, you need to know what you believe. Now listen, I'm, I'm going to get up on my hobby horse again here. I know I'm not supposed to do that as a preacher, but here's an opportunity. Understand me, please. Doctrine matters. All of it matters. And I know there might be some secondary things where we're allowed to have different interpretations and we can fuss about certain things and have different ideas, and I understand that, but it all matters. Bible study matters. The content of Scripture matters. Preaching matters. Christian education matters. Church services matter. They are not secondary. They are primary. The Puritan pastor Thomas Watson 
has a classic work called A Body of Divinity. I'd recommend any of you to get that book and read it. He says this, Such as are unlearned in the main points of divinity, that's doctrine, are unstable. As the body cannot be strong that has the sinews shrunk, so neither can that Christian be strong in religion who wants the grounds of knowledge, in other words, who lacks knowledge, which are the sinews to strengthen and establish him. Watson wrote those words as an introduction to a sermon series on the Westminster Catechism and Confession of Faith. <laughs> he preached that to his people. His point was to assert that the vital role that doctrine plays is huge in the strength and stability of God's people in this life. And he goes on to say, it is the duty of Christians to be settled in the doctrine of, of faith. And that the best way for Christians to be settled is to be well grounded. To know what they believe. To be convinced of its truth. And to stand without apology on it. In other words... Christian doctrine as found in the Word of God is man's God-given guide to a wise and stable frame of mind and to steadfast and hopeful responses to the difficulties of life on an everyday basis. This is why, beloved, the Word of God is the centerpiece of what we do as a church. This is why we have an equip class on Sunday morning. This is why we have a Wednesday evening gathering. It is for the purpose of learning what we believe so that we are equipped not only to live stable lives, but also to make a defense and to give a reason for our faith. Beloved, if you are not reading God's word on a regular basis, if you are not growing in your understanding of the Christian faith, then you are not stable. And if you are not stable and you know it this morning, my counsel to you is the first place you need to go is the Word of God. And I know you may need some crisis intervention for a particular circumstance. I get that. But the first place you must go is the Word of God. And you may believe the Bible. You may say you believe the Bible. You may gloriously and confidently hold the book up and say, I believe this. But my question is, do you know what's in it? Do you know what it says? My earnest prayer for you is that you would have an insatiable hunger for the Word of God. That you would have the experience of growing in grace. That you would grow in your love for the Word and your knowledge of it because this is where we learn who God is. This is where God instructs us in how to live right here and right now. Doctrine is not a discussion merely for the seminarians. It is for every Christian. And by it, we not only learn about what the Word says, but we grow strong in our faith and we are equipped to proclaim it to others. If you are in Christ, you are called to this. Furthermore, not only must we be striving to know what we believe for ourselves, this also means we must be looking for opportunities to talk about it and to tell others about it. Giving the gospel to unbelievers that we encounter when the Lord gives us opportunity and discipling or encouraging other Christians in their walk with the Lord according to how God has taught us. Listen, this is not an optional add-on to the Christian life. This is the Christian life. This is the substance of it. Knowing what we believe by saturating our minds with the Word of God and letting it change us and leading us to obedience and then looking for every opportunity to say what we can, to, to, to tell others what we believe for their benefit, for their edification. Do you realize that some of the most primary means of growing in grace in this congregation is one another. You understand that that means every one of you is meant to be a gift of spiritual growth to someone else. Here. So how can you do that? What opportunities are before you? I can't answer that question for you. The specifics are up to you. And use your imagination. But are you looking for an opportunity to invest what God has taught you 
into somebody else so that he might teach them to. Aren't you thankful for people who along your journey have, have spoken into your life and helped teach you? Now, how are you going to pass that along? All right. Finally, one more principle we need to see. Maintain a, a pure conscience. Look at verse 16. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. The idea of put to shame may be proven to be wrong and even somewhat embarrassed about it. Right? In other words, they don't have anything to grab onto and make solid accusations against you. A good conscience means freedom from guilt. But freedom from guilt in whose eyes? The world's? No, the Lord's. The world may accuse us of any manner of evil things, but if we have maintained a good conscience before God, then we don't have to be weighed down by the world's accusations. Why? Because God is the one to whom we are accountable. God is the one who is the focus of our lives. He's the one we're striving to please and to know. That means we need to guard ourselves very carefully so as to live blamelessly before Him by God's grace. And then we strive to live blamelessly before the world and not give them any legitimate reason to accuse us of wrongdoing. That's behind what Peter says back in chapter 1 when he commands us to be holy. Again, another preacher has summarized this very helpfully. He says, Slandered believers who maintain good behavior in Christ will have their consciences at rest, untroubled by guilt, and their godly lives will prove any criticisms from unbelievers to be false. A pure conscience can withstand and deflect whatever abusive, insulting speech the world hurls at it. Those who engage in such sinful mistreatment of obedient believers with the aim of shaming and defeating them will themselves be put to shame. Now that reckoning may not always happen in this life. But rest assured, my friends, it will happen. Why? Because God's in charge. He's the righteous judge. So I ask, do you have a pure conscience before the Lord today? Or have you allowed the guilt of sin to weigh you down? And perhaps are you giving the world a foothold for accusation? To hold something before you and say, see, I knew you weren't a true Christian. See, I knew Christianity was false and fake. I urge you this morning, if you are burdened by the guilt of sin, Return to the Lord. You can return to the Lord. I urge you to return to the Lord. There is forgiveness. There is cleansing in Christ. As John said in 1 John 1, 9, you know this, right? If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you have a pure conscience before the Lord? And I would ask this too, do you have a pure conscience before the world? We're not perfect people. I know that. We mess up. We have bad days. We, uh, we know that. I don't have to explain that to you. You've lived it this week, so have I. We're not perfect. We're sinners. But we are sinners who are saved by God's grace through Christ and cleansed by His blood. I think back to that vision, that, that scene where Isaiah is being called into ministry by the Lord, and, and the Lord says, says, or, or he sees the glory of the Lord, and Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And then what happens? The angel comes, he takes the coal off the altar, he touches it to Isaiah's mouth, and he cleanses him. Right? And then the Lord says, Who will go for us? Who is there? And, and Isaiah says, Here am I, send me. And you expect the Lord to say, You... You're a man of dirty mouth. You're filthy. But you've been cleansed. Is that your testimony? And the world looks at you and says, you're a sinner just like I am. You can say, yeah, I know. But here's the difference. My sin has been washed away. 
I have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that blood is a sufficient fountain to wash away every sin for all who call in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not perfect, but we are saved by God's grace. We are cleansed by His blood. Do you have that pure conscience today? Living as a Christian in a world that is devastated by sin is not easy. We feel the weight of it every day. There is spiritual warfare. There is spiritual attack coming from the pit of hell itself. There is pressure from the world around us. To make matters worse, there is a sinful, sinful inclination within our own hearts. It's enough to make us want to quit altogether, isn't it? I'm sick of swimming upstream. Can't I just go the other way? But Peter writes to remind us that if we are in Christ, we belong to God. We are held firm in His hands. We are secure in Him. We are guaranteed an eternal heavenly inheritance in Christ Jesus. Retreat and surrender are not an option for us. And guess what, beloved? They're not necessary. We can stand fast and we can remain faithful in steadfast hope, even in the present world, even if we are alone. By God's grace, we can and we must be passionate for goodness, fearless in suffering, devoted to Christ, grounded in what we believe, confident in a pure conscience that has been cleansed by Christ himself before the Lord. And therefore, in this, I do not account my life of any value or as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. May this be the focus of our steadfast hope in a foreign land. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for that wonderful promise.